and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 in our Bibles this morning. And if you've been with us at all in recent weeks, I trust that at the mere mention of Matthew 6, your mind starts to think this is the middle uh, chapter of three chapters that records our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And I trust, again, if you've been with us, that maybe you back up and just think about Matthew as a whole, this book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And, and again, your mind starts to think about the fact that Matthew has, from the very beginning of this book, been presenting Jesus as God's anointed king. He is, from the first verse of the book, Jesus the Christ, God's anointed king. And when you put those two big ideas together, as well as a a series of other observations in this sermon, you come to the conclusion that this sermon on the mount is a declaration of the characteristics of true citizens of Christ's kingdom. What are those people like internally? What kind of marks are observable in their practice and their living out their relationship with God through Christ? And when you start to narrow in our focus even more to the section that begins in verse number 19 here in Matthew 6, this section of the Lord's Sermon addresses the mindsets that, that the citizens of Christ's kingdom have towards, as you can see right away in verse 19, towards the treasures of this life we are not to lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth if you skip in verse 20 uh, down to verse 20 we are to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven and verse 21 where your treasure is there will your heart be also and if you come right to the end of verse 24 the very last phrase of verse 24 says You can't serve God and mammon, which I trust you've noted is a reference to material wealth and and even money. So again, you can see that the citizens of Christ's kingdom are marked by a certain mindset towards money and towards the various treasures of this life. And what is clear all the way through is that when, when a man pursues money, and and the various treasures of this life for the advantage he can get on this earth alone, for the pleasure that he can get on this earth alone, for, for the satisfaction and comfort and convenience and security that you can get on this earth alone. If you just lay up your treasures for this earth, Jesus actually refers to that as being enslaved to those treasures. Look again at verse number 24. He says, no man can serve. And we noted that verb is the idea of slave for. No man can slave for two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So laying up your treasures on this earth okay, is one way slavery To money and material possessions displays itself. We've noted now the last couple of times that this 24th verse is like the hinge verse of the passage. It states that universal principle, you can't serve two masters. You specifically can't slave for God and material possessions. One way slavery to material things is displayed 
is by doing what we've seen in the verses leading up to here, by laying up treasures on earth. But on the other side of this hinge, there's a second way slavery to material things is displayed in verse number 25, and it is by worrying about the absence of material resources. Even as you continue on in verse 25, worrying about things like what you're going to eat and drink and what you're going to wear and so on. And that opening statement of verse 25 is that we are to take no thought about those things. That is that we are to abstain from being anxious, from worrying about them. And, and the word that is translated, take no thought, again, I would encourage you to write it in there because it really is descriptive. It, it refers to something being divided because it's torn in multiple directions. Your mind is getting pulled in multiple directions by anxiety. Everywhere you look, there's some other material, physical, maybe even financial pressure. And, and your mind and your heart is being torn in all kinds of directions, worrying about those things. And the way this grammar reads, remember in the text, the idea is, of the exhortation is stop it. That is, stop the worrying you are already doing. And, and by saying stop what you're already doing, it's assuming that we all struggle with this, at least at times. Because the Lord knows that he made us out of the dust of the earth. And, and now, on top of that, our dusty frame is marred by our own fleshly nature inside. He knows that we struggle. But he doesn't just tell us to stop it. He reasons with us. He helps us learn how to pursue victory. And he does that, remember, through asking questions. Questions that are, first of all, about the essence of our lives. Continuing on in verse 25, isn't your life more than just about these material things? And in the verse 26, isn't your life more valuable than the birds that God feeds? And in verse 27, do you really think you can do anything to add to the life that God has ordained for you. So just think about those questions. Do you really think that this is all there is? This struggle that we have with day-to-day -day existence and, and eating and drinking and, and, and what we're going to wear and all that. Do you, do you really think that this is all there is? Do you think that you might even die prematurely and, and just insignificantly? Or, on the other hand, do you think you could extend your life by worrying about all of this? You know that the very existence of your life is in God's hands, don't you? So, stop worrying about it. And then you go into the verse number 28. And the question of verse 28, the flowers in the field, is really more a question about about the quality and beauty of our lives. You go into verse 29, and Solomon, and you can see there, his clothes are mentioned. Well, due to all the riches that Solomon had, 
Solomon and even the Queen of Sheba noted, even Solomon's servants wore robes that were unrivaled for their splendor. But no man-made garment, whether it's a king like Solomon's or any other, no man-made garment, no matter how expensive, can match the beauty of some unspoiled field of grass and the flowers of God's creation. And you know it. We go out into the country and we take some walks just to be out there and look at it. And we stand in awe of that like nothing else. And the God who made a field full of radiant splendor and beauty is a God that can give you a life that is truly beautiful. In fact, he can give you a life that is more beautiful than you could ever achieve for yourself in your own efforts and through all the money you could spend. So, these truths at the end of verse 30 leave us with one simple question. And at the end of verse 30, the question is the question of our what? Yeah, and I'm hearing some of you whisper it, but what's the very last word? The last word of the verse is, that's the question. It's the question of our faith. What do we really believe? I know, and, and Jesus knows, I mean, he gives us these questions that are rhetorical questions, assuming everybody gets it right. Well, we know there's more to life than this, right? We know that God sustains it. We're not going to die before he's ordained. We're not going to live longer than he's ordained. We know we can't improve on the quality of life he can give, but, but what we're faced with is we would get the answers right on a test, but what do we really believe? That about God being in control of the very essence of our life and the quality of our life. And after that development, the Lord returns in verse 31 with the same basic exhortation of verse 25. You can see if you just go back to verse 25. Therefore I say to you, take no thought. Now look at verse number 31. Therefore, take no thought. But I would just point out that in the Greek grammar, which is what the Spirit of God superintended to be written, there's a slightly different form of this. And I'm not grasping at something all the commentators and word students comment on this in verse 25 i tried to emphasize this that the grammar exhorts us to stop worrying that's the idea stop something that's already going on but in verse 31 the way this words it's still about worry but in this case the exhortation is don't ever do it again So stop what you're doing. He assumes that we struggle with it. But now after all that reasoning, we get to verse 31. And he says, now, with all those questions about God being in control and God giving you a quality of life you couldn't give for yourself, if you really believe that, don't ever do it again. Now, I know we we could respond to everything up to this point and, and we could say, And I'm guessing that nearly every one of us went away last week even saying, I know I worry too much. I mean, I think I'm getting victory over it in many respects, but I still do worry too much. I admit it. 
And, and I need to, we'll even say things like, I need to work at not worrying so much. But behind those statements, we do kind of think, well, but it is just natural after all. And I mean, we're going to do it some. And we can even resort back to Jesus' words, assuming that we struggle. But behind the way we're talking about, yeah, I know I worry too much, I need to cut back. But we do just kind of leave room for, well, I mean, everybody's going to worry some. I mean, it's just going to happen. But Jesus cycles back through and he says, no, it's not okay. And don't ever do it again. And if that statement sounds really like hard-nosed, look at what follows. In verse number 31, he says, again, don't ever worry. Don't ever worry again about what? About what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear because, verse 32, when you do that, you're living on the same level as people who don't know God at all. Look at verse 32. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Now, Gentile here is not an ethnic statement referring to non-Jews. Okay. In, it was in that day something like saying the heathen. The heathen worry about these things. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about immoral Gentiles who don't know God. That's the exact expression. In Ephesians chapter 4, it speaks of the Gentiles who are alienated from the life of God because of the darkness that is in them. Okay, so these people, all right, that's what we're supposed to think of. These, the heathen of this world who don't know God... Well, they are people who seek after material possessions as a focus of their life. They do worry about all this. And many in the world would probably react defensively to the suggestion that money and material things are the focus of their life and that they worry about all this. Some would say, I don't either. Well, the, the facts are actually pretty staggering. As a witness that we do. You just think about us here, all right, in the United States. We live in one of the wealthiest nations ever in the history of the world. And some of the stats I was able to go back, go back to 2018, but obviously that's pretty close. But in 2018, the average annual income per person in the United States, so the wealth Okay, of people in the United States per person, every man, woman, and child was just under $54,000. In a country like India, that figure drops down to 1670 In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the nation that was formerly known as Zaire, that number drops to just under $400 per person. One source suggested that most of us, many of us at least, 
spend more on one meal out to eat than much of the world spends in a month. Over half of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. But do you think that Americans as a whole are content and living within our means? The answer is that we are one of the most debt-ridden nations in the world. In August of 2018, the average personal debt of Americans was right at $38,000. Personal debt does not include something like mortgage on a house or an investment of that sort, so even you take that out. It, it includes primarily what's carried on credit cards and auto payment and student loans and so on. How do we have all this wealth and yet we keep spending more and more than we have. And what kind of pressures does keeping up with, you know, the lifestyles of others put on our decision making? And what kind of pressures does this put on marriages and homes? And on and on it goes. So much is being sacrificed in pursuit of material treasures and on account of worries and anxieties. These things are driving the typical choices of unbelievers. They are driving the choices of unbelievers. Why? How does that happen? Well, continuing on in verse 32... These people don't know God. I mean, that's the first part, the Gentiles. But they don't have the relationship with God that you have. Because God to you, who is God to you? Look at verse 32. He is your heavenly what? He's your heavenly Father. God to you is not just the man upstairs, right? He's not just Father Time. He's not even the Creator, he is your father. And again, the description of a father speaks of his care and his passion to, to provide for you. And the fact that he is, he is your heavenly father. Heaven speaks of his vantage point and his power from heaven. He sees everything that is going on in your life. And he knows everything that is going on in your life. And from his position in heaven, he has the power and the ability to take care of everything that is going on in your life. And right here in verse 32, your heavenly father knows what about you? Your heavenly father knows what you need. Your Heavenly Father knows every last need that you really have. And, and you could say, well, I have to have so much money by such and such a date, or I can't continue to whatever it is, fill in the blank, and I don't have it. Your Heavenly Father knows that. That's not a surprise to him. 
My, my car has to be replaced. I mean, we have tried to fix it and fix it and fix it. And, and, and it's, I mean, I'm at the place where we're going to get stuck somewhere and who knows what's going to happen. I mean, we've got, our, this car needs to be replaced. He knows that. My child needs some medical treatment. I mean, my child just needs some doctor to jump in and send us to a specialist and, and even just open the door. I mean, my, my kids have needs. And, and, and if we do get the open door, I don't even know how we're going to begin to pay for that. He knows that. I need, I mean, I got to get some physical energy. I don't know how I'm going to get everything that I'm supposed to get done. I mean, I feel like I'm going to have to stay up the next two nights in a row. And, and I can't even sit down and, and read anything for 30 seconds right now without falling asleep. How am I going to make it? He knows that. He knows the deadlines. Nothing escapes him. And he knows what your needs are. The Gentiles don't have that. They don't have that confidence. The unbeliever doesn't have that confidence. But you know you have a father who's in heaven who knows all those things. And now he's going to counsel you about something very directly. In verse number 33, with all of that knowledge, that he knows all of that, his counsel to you is going to be this. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. You say, I don't get how that works. I mean, I, I'm supposed to give time and energy and finances and whatever else to him first? Yes, that's what he counsels you to do. Listen, this is his counsel. Even about the handling of your worry, his counsel is instead of worry invest in his kingdom instead of worry invest in his kingdom and and brethren it's when you trust god with all those things and invest in his kingdom that you really get freedom from the enslavement to material things now what does it mean to invest in his kingdom this this is not pastor fuller about to turn the thing and say we're going to pass the offering plates again and again and again. And, you know, you put the seed in and you'll be richer than you've ever been. Okay? Because that's not where the text is. That's not the light of the scripture. What does it mean to seek first as the greatest priority his kingdom and his righteousness? Well, I'll just stop here to say, first of all, you enter his kingdom through a saving faith in his son. Colossians talks about God delivering us from the kingdom of darkness and translating us into the kingdom of his dear son. One of the, I mean, we can talk about being saved, born again, believing, but one of the expressions that talks about the very entrance into the Christian life is being translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. 
You enter that kingdom by confessing that you are a sinner and that you can't save yourself and you mourn over that state before God and you just say, God, I have to trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone for my standing with you. And dear friend, if you're here today and you have never done that, that is the most important reality you could take, the most important step you could take. To even deal with worry and anxiety. And I'm not just talking to you about, you know, I'm, I'm not counseling you as a psychologist or counselor or anything like that just in terms of anxiety. But I'm telling you that the most important way you can deal with anxiety is run to Christ to be your Savior. That's the first step. But then, what do you do as a believing person? Interesting that he says, <clears throat> his kingdom and righteousness what would that be? Well, I'm just going to encourage you to stay right in, the, in this sermon, okay? Starting back at chapter 5, look back to the Beatitudes. What would it be to pursue the advancement of God's kingdom and righteousness? Well, those first several we talked about when we walked through it are part of the entrance into the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I confess that I, that I have nothing to commend myself to God. Because of verse 4, the sin that I mourn over and I respond again to the word meekly and, and I seek after in verse number 6 the righteousness that is found in Christ, all right? Those things are part of the entrance into that kingdom, but following that are evidences. And one of the ways that I can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is plead with God in verse number 7 to make me more merciful. And, and to give me more and more of, verse number 8, purity in heart, real holiness. And what it would be to be a peacemaker. And you can continue on. Or you can skip to later in this sermon and, and come down to a place like verse number 21, where Jesus said, you've heard that it was said by old time, thou shalt not kill. And, and, but what I'm seeking is not just to be free of violating the sixth commandment by murder, but he says in verse number 22, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Or continue on, whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, empty head. What I really want God to do is, is to do something on my inner man. Look at verse number 27. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, what Jesus is saying is true righteousness is not just a matter of not formally violating the marital covenant, but it's a matter, again, of dealing with wrong thoughts and wrong desires on the heart level. And you can continue right on through verse number 33. It's, and, and through verse 37 is God transforming my character to be genuinely truly honest and no cloaks for my dishonesty and learning what it is before the chapter's over to love them that hate you and pray for them that despise you and use you part of seeking first the kingdom of god and his righteousness is is to pursue character transformation that is done by the spirit of god and we've been saying, 
We've looked at 1 Timothy 6 a couple times. I'm not going there again. But when the whole society is in love with money and has a will to be rich, if you're going to be a man of God, a woman of God, and you're going to flee those things, and you're going to pursue faith and righteousness and godliness and love, if you're going to pursue those things, it's going to be agonizing. Remember, that's fight the good fight agonize the good agony but you will do it because you are laying hold of eternal life you're living with eternity in view pursue the development of of your own character you know what that means that means that seeking first the kingdom of god and his righteousness means that instead of me worrying to the point of anxiety and distraction i am going to stop and i am going to spend time with god today alone in his word, as the first rate, I need, look, I need this more than I need to study. I need this more than I need to work out. I need this more than I need overtime. I need time with God today, one-on-one, me meeting with him, because it's when I see him in the word that his spirit does the work of transforming my inner man. And I'm going to put his kingdom and righteousness first. And you can continue right on into chapter 6. I know there's more than this, but I'm just trying to think in terms of, of, of even this sermon. You come to chapter 6 and think about the most extended digression of early in chapter 6 is on prayer. And verse number 9, Jesus starts teaching us about how to pray. And there's a pattern for prayer. And in that pattern for prayer, how many requests are there? Can you think with me again? How many requests are there in the Lord's Prayer? There are six of them. And they fall into how many categories? They fall into two categories. Because the first three are about whose interests? They're about God's interests. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And the next three are about our needs. Yeah, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation, but... But of those two categories, which one comes first? Now think about the way we pray. And brethren, I had been studying for this message. And then I went for a walk and prayer. And I could point you to right where I was when I was praying. And I was praying about several things regarding my family in particular at this time. And God stopped me right in my tracks because I realized everything I was praying about my family was first of all occupied with the interests of my family. And I had to stop and say, God, help me. I'm praying for this and this and this. And I'm not thinking at all about would you do it so that your name is hallowed and your kingdom advanced and your will be done. And I need to get my priorities right. And God, would you work? But would you work so that it's about you and your name being honored and glorified? And you know what? It's an amazing thing when you start talking about whatever it is, your family, your ministry, your whatever. And you actually take a step back and say, well, it's really not about me and my anything. It's really about God and his advancement. And when I keep that right, do you, have you ever been in prayer and, and when you're done praying, you're actually more anxious than when you started? 
Because in prayer, we start thinking about all these this and this and this and this. But you know what happens when I go back and I say, all these things that I'm burned about, God is also burned about. And most importantly, is, is God's name being glorified. And if I take a step back and I pray even for my burdens in light of God's purposes, it takes away the anxiety. And, and you can could, could continue on. You, certainly we could ransack the Bible outside of, of just Matthew. We could talk about investing of our talents and gifts in the Lord's work. The, all of the most extended discussions. Today, you know, and there may be a place for some of this, but you take these personal personality inventory things to try to discover your gifts and, and all of that. And the teamwork in various settings. And there's a place for, I'm sh- sure, for some of that. But in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 are the most extended discussion of gifts. And both of those are about investing yourself in the ministry of a local church. Everything I'm going to be thinking about, about what God has given me and what he's equipped me to and what he enables me to, is how can I serve with my brethren in my church for the advancement of his kingdom? And if I get right down to finances, specifically, and I think about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, well, I, 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 I can think of a verse like Ephesians 4, 28, let him that stole steal no more, but let him rather labor, working with his hands, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Regard the finances that God has given as a stewardship to invest in giving to meet the needs of others. So instead of worry, invest in the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And you'd think we'd be done here, but there is one more verse, and I'm not going to belabor it long. Look at the last verse of chapter 6, one more time, Jesus repeats the exhortation to take no thought. Don't worry. But this time, the object is very specific. This time, don't worry about what? Look at it. Don't worry about... Okay, say it. Don't worry about... Tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow, and even tomorrow and what, we could add. Don't worry about tomorrow and its troubles. Don't worry about tomorrow and its troubles. Um, when he refers to tomorrow, worrying about things, he says, take no thought. You can see again for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. When you think of tomorrow worrying about its own things, Okay, that, that is obviously like a tongue-in-cheek expression to get our attention. Okay, tomorrow doesn't really what? Tomorrow doesn't really worry. But what he means is that every day there is going to be some trouble. I, and I'm sorry to tell you this, but you may get a flat tire tomorrow. Or you may get up and, you know, ready to go out the door and the battery's dead. Or somebody who's feeling great today and we think we're past it ends up with a fever tomorrow. I mean, that's about as bad as it gets right now, right? 
I mean, some of you are just hoping I get through this semester or whatever it is. I, I, you know, so far I've been able to work every day and I'm going to get a fever from somebody somewhere. And I'm not saying don't be careful and take right precautions. But, but what he says is this, okay? There are going to be troubles tomorrow, without a doubt. There are going to be some troubles. You are going to face them. But listen, don't anticipate and even exaggerate those problems. That's what happens. When I sit here today all anxious about tomorrow, I'm exaggerating. What, what you face in a particular day, notice what he says at the end, verse 34, sufficient unto the day is the evil there. Okay? What you face in a particular day is not going to be more than you can handle in it. When you get to tomorrow and what you face tomorrow, nothing you face tomorrow is going to be more difficult than what you can handle. But what he's warning, look, what he's warning is there's no provision for the anxieties that worry about tomorrow on top of what you're dealing with today. That's what he's saying. I'll give you the grace for today, today. But if you're going to get all worried about tomorrow, on top of today, there's no provision for that. And that's what will really mess you up (laughs) and mess all of us up. So, stop worrying. In fact, don't ever attempt to justify worry again. Instead, invest in Christ's kingdom and trust God for tomorrow's grace when you get to tomorrow. And that's how he ends. And that's where we're left. Will we do that? Will we stop worrying? And will we just say there's no justification for worrying ever again? Invest in Christ's kingdom and trust God for tomorrow's grace when you get to tomorrow. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't, I don't intend even a slight negative reference to going to a pastor for counsel, going to a counselor for counsel, going to a professional, and, and various resources that are out there. But I do want to come back and say this. Right in the middle of Jesus' sermon, we've had the opportunity to be counseled by him. We really have. If you wanted to sit down with any counselor, wouldn't it really, wouldn't you really want to just sit down with the Lord Jesus himself and let him counsel you? And in this section of this message, we have him counseling us. And he counsels with some imperatives. Stop that. Don't do that. He counsels us with some questions. To get us thinking. And then he really points us to where to put our faith and where to put our energies. And I trust that you can just respond to the Lord personally, thanking him for that counsel, maybe confessing the need of your heart. 
and even pleading with him for grace to believe right through what is coming in the days to come.